You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? MMs and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter MMs. Because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter MMs and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Thinking Sideways is not supported by playing competitive solitaire. Instead, it's supported by the generous donations of our listeners on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash thinking sideways to learn more. And thanks. Thinking Sideways. I don't understand. Stories of things we simply don't know the answer to. Well, hi there. Welcome to another episode of Thinking Sideways. I'm Joe, joined as always by... Devin. And... Steve. And we're going to, guess what? We're going to talk about cooking. (laughs) Not really. Okay. Of course, a mystery. Another groovy mystery. Ah, okay. Our mystery began on Halloween Day, 1975. We're Uh, a little late with this one. Yeah. Yeah. It's 40-some years. Um... But actually, there's still a little movement on this one, believe it or not. Still stuff going on. There is. Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who suggested this mystery to us. I know you're <laughs> laughing right yeah. now, but really. But really, yeah. But he, genuinely. He, yeah, he just published a new book, and uh, and his publisher sent us a copy. And I, I love it when people give us free stuff. Yeah, me it's too. Cool. Uh, the book is called Framed, again, by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And it's a really good roundup of the story and all the suspects, and this case has actually received a lot of national attention for a long time. Lots of books have been written about it, not just RFKs. And uh, also there's another book that was written in the 90s by Mark Furman, and you may have heard of Furman. He was the LAPD homicide detective who was assigned to the O.J. Simpson murder. Oh, yeah, that guy. Yeah, you remember that guy? Yeah. did a really good job with that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out so well, and uh, so the murder of O.J. Simpson's wife and her boyfriend remains unsolved. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, no, really. Just kidding. Um, 
Uh, Furman's book has got some good information in it, though I don't really agree with all of his conclusions. He uh, did a lot of reconstruction of the crime scene. He did. He did. He's got some drawings in there and stuff, and and so and he's a professional. Obviously, he he knows how to read his crime scenes better than the Greenwich PD. Yeah. By the way, our murder takes place in Greenwich, Connecticut. Yeah. So thanks to um, RFK and thanks to Furman yeah. for suggesting this mystery to us. Yeah. yeah. Well, Furman didn't. Uh, well, just RFK. Yeah. I said I sent an email to his publisher to see if he'd be willing to talk to me. And surprise, I never heard back. What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, back to our mystery. Uh, Halloween, 1975, October 31st, about noon on that day, the body of a 15-year-old girl named Martha Moxley was found under a tree in her family's yard in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, she'd been bludgeoned on the head with a golf club, uh, and the club then broke into several pieces, which was either either from the force of the blows to her head or maybe from the deliberate action of maybe the, the killer actually broke it deliberately. It's hard to say. But it was in, it was in basically four pieces. Uh, before you go on, yeah. uh, probably should warn people if there's munchkins around. Oh yeah, pause from here on forward. Yeah, it's kind of a brutal. It's murder. kind of brutal. Yes, yeah, it is. I know. I was just thinking how maybe we should have just said that earlier. I, I realize uh, this. I know what's coming. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so yeah, so three pieces of the club were found laying in the grass in the Moxley yard. That was the head, you know, the, the part that you actually whacked the ball with, and then two pieces of shaft, stainless steel shaft. And then the fourth piece was a piece of stainless steel shaft with the handle attached to it. You know, that's the part that you grip with your hands when you swing the golf club. Yeah, the, the rubber grippy bit. Yeah, that, that, part, that part was used to stab her in the neck several times. And uh, the last one went all the way through, and it went through her windpipe. And it's believed that it, even if she had survived all the blows, she would have died anyway from drowning in her own blood. Yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, the killer at that point, uh, I'm getting out of hand here. It's like I, there was one blow delivered in the driveway. If you look, if you look at an aerial of the house, it's a, the house where it took place is at 38 Walsh Lane in Greenwich, Connecticut. If you go to Google, you can get a look at an aerial of it, but they've changed up the driveway a little bit. It used to be it used to run on the west side of the house, north to Walsh Lane, and then a little semicircular piece break, breaks off and branches out and goes also to Walsh Lane. So you have a sort of semicircular driveway there. So that patch of grass in the middle is where the initial attack appeared to have taken place. So in the middle of basically a roundabout. Yeah, kind of a roundabout thing. Uh, And then apparently... It's uh, a half circle. Yeah, it's like a quarter circle, actually, when you think about it. Okay, so not a roundabout. Yeah. A quarter about. It's like a a U-shaped driveway. Yeah, except it's not quite U-shaped. It's like this and like this. Right. Yeah. You can't see what I did, but <laughs> I drew in the when, air. I sorry, drew in the air for, for when 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 the murder happened. Yeah, not anymore. Yeah, no, it's yeah, totally it's been, it's been changed. It's a total horseshoe shape now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I guess it's probably worth noting that this is a gated community, so there's no street view. That's right. It's you so have to just look at Google Earth. For I know. Mm-hmm. I know. That's so frustrating. I <laughs> know. Uh, yeah. But anyway... Um, so the um, attack happens on the quarter circle. The initial yeah. attack. Yeah, yeah. After that point, the killer dragged Martha south, face down, grabbed her by the feet, basically, and drug her face down across the driveway. And, and we know this because there were lots of gouges in her face. Uh, took her to a place over by a Japanese maple to just to the south of the driveway and resumed beating and stabbing her. This was where the main attack took place uh, because there was a major amount of blood was found there. And then, uh, la- and then last of all, he drug her another like 80 feet south to a big pine tree and left the body under the pine tree. It's, uh, in Mark Furman's book, he says that the wounds were such that they would have, she would have been oozing rather than gushing blood. Mm-hmm. So he believes the killer actually left her laying next to the Japanese maple for about half an hour and then came and then back, came back and, and, and administered the coup de grace with mm-hmm. the handle and then dragged her away. That's... 
for me that vastly changes the tone of tone this, of this yeah. thing, right? You know, because it's one thing to say, okay, yeah, somebody went a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Understatement. Pretty guano crazy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, beat this girl a lot and, you know, stabbed her and killed her and then dragged her body to hide her versus somebody beat this girl, uh-huh. left her, and then came back and continued to do some assaults yeah. to like her. Like took a union break in the middle. Yeah. yeah. But, but of course, I, it, I, could, I could be wrong about that, too. He might have actually done all it the attacking. It could be totally wrong, yeah. And she did all the bleeding there. And then he came back later and decided to move the body, but mm-hmm. didn't actually attack her anymore. Right. So we don't really know. Yeah. In uh, the the broken bits of golf club, where were they next to her body? So they um, were moved as well. No, no, they, they were, were at the initial attack. Yeah, side. They were, two of them were at the initial attack site, uh, the circle in the driveway, and then one of them was cl- fairly close to her body. It was a piece of shaft, and then the fourth one was uh, the handle itself mm. was sticking out of her neck. Okay. Remember that too, by the way. Look at the golf club handle because that becomes an important little clue later on. Okay. Yeah. When Martha's body was found, her jeans had been pulled down and her panties had been rolled down. Uh, she was face down. There were two smears of blood on her inner thighs, and uh, there was no evidence of rape, by the way. Or sexual assault of any kind, right? Really, yeah, except, yeah. For, except for the blood smears on her thighs, which right. were probably put there by the murderer, mm-hmm. you know, doing something. But he didn't actually complete any act or anything like that. I thought I had read that in the coroner's report there was no signs of, of any kind of assault or trauma in her... Genital yeah. region. Yeah, no, it was that uh, she was. Yeah, she had not been. So either yet. there was something like totally consensual that had happened, or mm-hmm. well, that's. Um, well, I don't remember don't anything about any said, sexual activity. I mean, I there's, there's talk that yeah. there was some sexual activity earlier in the evening. Just, but yeah, it, it wasn't earlier. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't full intercourse, and I yeah. think that that's. Yeah. That's what you, it's probably what your why it's it's coming up as Joe saying right, there's right. no assault that way there's no right. evidence of it right yeah, yeah no. I, I wanted to clarify that as well but yeah that's but the, the fact that her panties were rolled down and the fact that they found blood spatter on the inside of the panties told the police and the medical examiner types that uh, she had probably been attacked by somebody that she knew and in fact not just in, not just somebody that she knew but somebody that she'd be willing to roll her panties down for so wait I don't understand how the blood on the inside of the panties leads to that that understanding well because if he'd beaten her with her pants up and everything the blood would have gone all over her pants the outside and the outside of her pants okay so the point is her pants were down and Mm -hmm. then she She was was treated as a pincushion yeah Yeah. okay Mm -hmm. that's that's the distinction i wasn't quite getting and i think the the further distinction on that is that it looked like she had done it not Mm -hmm. that they had been like torn off her right so her pants weren't pulled double or anything crazy Mm -hmm. like i got it i got it yeah uh, so at this point, I've described that described the murder. Uh, let me tell about tell you guys all about our cast of characters. It's a big one. Yeah, there's a lot of people involved in this story, uh, so I'm going to try to keep this to a manageable number of people. First of all, Martha's family, the Moxleys, uh, they've been living in Bellhaven. Did I mention this is in Bellhaven, Connecticut? Bellhaven is a like a, a neighborhood within Greenwich, Connecticut, mm-hmm. and it's like the richest neighborhood in Greenwich, which is also, by the way, a fairly wealthy city itself. Yeah, it's so it's posh. The the aerial pictures of this is kind of one of those things where you look at it and you're like, is that one yard? Is that a country club? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do people live there? Why do they have that many pools? Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> a yeah. full-size tennis court and three pools? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, like one of the one of the families here, the Skakel family, they have this huge tract of land for, for in an area where I'm sure land is 
I mean, incredibly expensive. Yeah. They have like a tennis court and a chipping tee with two golf golf holes in it and everything, and and a swimming pool, and it's just just this big area, this meadow to wander around in, and a huge huge house, and yeah, yeah, it must be nice. Yeah. So really. basically, this is the kind of neighborhood where they wouldn't let you buy a house. No, I'm they pointing wouldn't. at you. Yeah. No, no, they wouldn't. You specifically, yeah. but yeah. it's also the kind of neighborhood where like really horrible murders don't happen either. Not very often. Yeah. No. Yeah. The Moxies had been there about a year and a half. Uh, the Moxies were David and Dorothy. That's mom and dad. Uh, they had two kids, John and Martha. Uh, at the time of the murder, John was 17, and Martha, his little sister, was 15. Across the street to the north, across Walsh Lane, was a large piece of land owned by the Skakels, again, with a big, big house and lots of other cool stuff on it. And Rushton Skakel Sr., also known as Rucky, um, was uh, a widower with seven kids. He had Gosh. six sons and one daughter. Ugh. Yeah, so his kids were Rushton Jr., also, a.k.a. Rush, uh, Julie, John, Tommy, Michael, David, and Stephen. Uh, you think it, he hates that band? Yeah, wants <laughs> Rush? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the two characters out of all, the, all the, the siblings to really remember are Tommy and Michael. The middle boys. Yeah, because they, the, they were the ones who became the suspects. Tommy, of course, was, was the major suspect in this murder for years. And then in the late 90s, Mark Furman wrote his book, Murder in Greenwich, which pointed the finger at Michael. Uh, Michael Skakel was eventually convicted of Martha's murder in 2002, and he was sentenced to 20 years to life. Do you know how, how old those boys were uh, at the time? Michael at the time was 15, and Tommy was 17. Okay. Yeah. And Michael, by the way, was a, was a runt. He was like five five foot two at the time, weighed about 120 pounds. Little guy. He was yeah. fifteen. Yeah, Come he eventually yeah. yeah, he eventually grew up and got and became a big guy. But yeah, at the time he was pretty small. Uh maybe too small to commit a murder. I don't know. Well, yeah. I don't know. A fifteen year old girl's not exactly I don't think Martha was exactly hulking. No, she was <laughs> she was actually about about as tall as Michael at the time. Though. Yeah. Michael said late many years later that that if if he had attacked her she would have kicked his ass. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should also mention one other major character in this story, which is Ken Littleton. He was hired by Rush Senior to look after the Skakel kids and also to be a living tutor to Tommy and Michael. Because their mother had passed away. Yeah, their mother a couple had passed years away. Prior. There was not much in the way of parental supervision. She died about three years before is, okay. from cancer. Mm-hmm. So yeah. He, yeah, he was kind of like the living nanny, basically, right? Kind of, he kind of cooked, like, he you know, cleaned, he took the kids out, but uh, he, he also tutored. No, they actually had other servants that did the cooking and the cleaning. Oh, but he yeah. took the kids out. Yeah, he took them out, and he was his idea is he was there to provide a little supervision mm-hmm. and tutor Tommy and Michael. Okay. Yeah, I think the politically correct term is staff. They had a lot of servants. Must be great. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. They love the house it. staff. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so Ken. Yeah, uh, Ken's, Ken's first day on the job was October 30th. Oh. Yeah, when he oh. moved into the Skakel house. And talk about your bad timing. Uh, he's kind of like the maid in the Hinterkaifeck case. Remember yeah. that one? Yeah. Yeah, shows up the day of. That turned him into a major suspect for years, and police harassed him and, and tried to tried to get him on this for years. And they did everything from bugging his telephone and and cooking up sketchy deals with his ex-wife to try to get her to get him to implicate himself and on and on and on. I I just feel like uh, your first day on the job, really? Like who's gonna go out and kill somebody the first day of the job, the, right? The girl that lives literally across the street on the first day of the job, really, uh-huh. really. Like I might not understand the impulse of, um, you know, serial killers or anything like that, but really, first it's day on of the, the list job? of things not to do on day one. Just like exactly. getting drunk the night before yeah. your yeah. your first day on the job, not something you do. Yeah. Dyeing your hair a crazy color or crazy cut. 
not. Things you don't do. Murdering the neighbor girl, also Also not. a thing, don't yeah. do it. No. No, yeah. I know, I know. And there's actually, uh, even though he was such a major, uh, there's actually no evidence that he ever even met Martha. Yeah. But yeah, yeah they, they hunted him down. But they did this with all of their suspects. Oh yeah, they, they harassed a lot of people. They went after everybody they thought it could be super hard. And frankly, they did some, some kind of sketchy things the police did. Talk a little bit more about that later, but... Uh, Anyway, Ken had, uh, his life went really downhill after the murder, and uh, he, he had a lot of drug and, drug and alcohol abuse and some mental illness and stuff, and it's hard to say, you know, he had a promising future at that time, but then uh, that stuff might have happened anyway, he might have, but you know, might the Might have developed the drinking habits and the drug habits, that, regardless. Maybe all that stuff would well, have happened, And how old was he when it happened? He was 24. Okay, well, yeah. yeah. I he was mean, 24, and he was teaching at Brunswick School, which is mm-hmm. a very exclusive private school in Belhaven. Or no, I don't think it's in Belhaven, but it's not far away. In and where Tommy and Michael were both going to school. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those places where the rich people send your, their kids to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, Ken had a good future ahead of him. Oh, and one last thing you need to know about the Skakel family. Uh, they're related to the Kennedys, as in you know John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy and all that. Uh, Russian Skakel Sr., a.k.a. Rocky, the dad, was the brother of Ethel Skakel, who married Robert F. Kennedy Sr. And you remember him? He was he was uh, JFK's brother, and he was assassinated in 1968. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that. And so Tommy and Michael Skakel uh, are cousins of RFK Jr., which is why he wrote the book. And obviously, he doesn't believe Michael committed the murder. Yeah, he's got he's got a vested interest in having mm-hmm. his family be cleared of this murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, plus he's, he's, he's a little been, family pride. He's been good buddies with Michael for many years, and and uh, and he, but he presents some some actual pretty compelling evidence, and mm-hmm. so it'll, but we'll talk about that. And one of the most recent twists in the case uh, is in 2013, a Connecticut judge named Thomas Bishop. Threw out Michael Skakel's conviction and ordered a new trial uh, based on the argument of incompetence of counsel. Uh, Michael's attorney for his 2002 trial was a guy named Mickey Sherman. And RFK has some pretty harsh words for him in his book. I don't know if you guys read the book or not. Uh, no, I skimmed it. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. I We had so much stuff going on, I didn't. Yeah, no, that's okay. Two books. I, I, was, like, um... I was stuck in tw- 28 land, so I, <laughs> I did not. I'm sorry. Uh, that's okay. Uh, in Mickey's defense, I have to say that even if he didn't cross every T, I still really don't see how the prosecution in this case got a conviction. Um, it was seemed like a lot of it was circumstantial. Well, yeah, it was, there was no physical evidence. I mean, there was linking him to the crime. There was some physical evidence at the crime scene. Uh, one of the things I forgot to mention, by the way, is that the uh, the golf club handle that was sticking out of her neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two police officers and, and one doctor saw that thing. The police officers saw it sticking out of her neck, and uh, and a doctor who was examining the body to make sure she was actually dead saw it laying on the ground next to her body. So it looks like somebody pulled. And he was out the one who neck. pronounced her, correct? Yeah, yeah. It so a, he, it was, so it should have been in until. Yeah, he, he probably should have been. You can see, you can understand why somebody might want to pull it out. But they didn't. The police didn't actually do a great job of securing the crime scene. And apparently, there were a lot of people hanging around. Oi. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, it was. They, uh, I mean, the, the, the Greenwich police had not actually investigated a murder in decades. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, it never happens in that town. Yeah. And so it just wasn't their kind of thing. Uh, and so they didn't really. There was other stuff found near the body. A, a pair of jeans with a size 36 waist that was all soaked in blood was found near the body. Hmm. Some beer cans were found, and a golf ball, and all that evidence was apparently collected but but lost. <laughs> yeah. Well, police lose stuff. I mean, it happens. I mean, you know. You yeah, know, but usually not like key pieces of evidence. Right. You know about DB Cooper's cigarette butts, right? Devin, remember this is. 
27 years later by that point yeah. when the, when this case comes up. All I can say yeah. is that I hope that when I'm bludgeoned to death and they find some soaked jeans in my blood next to the body, they hold on to those you, until like you would 100 years later. We will, uh, we will go ahead and store them in Joe's basement okay. because mm-hmm. everything is in Joe's basement okay. and it never leaves. Great. Perfect. Yeah, that's a great spot. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I hate throwing stuff out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, the most important piece, of course, as I was saying, was the golf club handle. And, and the prosecution in Michael's trial managed to spin that fact that, that this, this thing was missing as the killer took it with him. What? When he left the crime scene. Right. Wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait, back up. So we have witnesses that see it in her initially and then on the ground next to her later. Mm-hmm. And then when it's disappeared 27 years later, that's because the killer took it out of the body with them at the time of the murder? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. That is the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Well, you know, I've read... I, I didn't have time to read the entire transcript of the entire thing, of the entire trial. But I read the summations of both the prosecution and the defense. And so they went through all their arguments and talked about all the evidence. So, you know, I really didn't need to read the entire trial transcript. Yeah. It was all there. All the arguments were there. And the prosecution's theory was a little strange. They they talked about the, the golf, the, the missing murder weapon... Because the thing about it is, is this was what's called, it's a, the brand on this golf club is Tony Pena. Apparently they're not. It's not a really common brand. Okay. And it had been owned by, by Rustin Sr.'s wife, Anne, who had died. Mm-hmm. And every, uh, every, every one of the clubs was embossed with her name, said Mrs. R.K. Skakel. And, and by, by the way, was that, in the, was that carved into the metal or was that in the rubber of the handle? I believe it was in the metal. Okay. Yeah. And so, uh, so the, the prosecution's theory was that the killer must have been a skakel because if it had been somebody from somebody else, then they wouldn't have had an interest in taking that handle away because because mm, it wouldn't be embossed with their mother's name on it. Yeah, right? yeah. And so, and so obviously he took the he took the fact that this thing was not in evidence that obviously that points a guilty finger at somebody in the skakel family. I, I could see that, except I also seem to remember that these teenagers, being teenagers, left stuff lying around all the time. And if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, yeah. wasn't it? It wasn't uncommon to see several of the clubs just sitting on the on their property, just hanging out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It wasn't as if they were always put away and cared for. Yeah, no, it's, it's, that's true. I mean, they were, they were apparently. So it's lo- not as if it I was heard. under lock and key, and only by, by having access to the home could you get one of those. Yeah. Right. So now no. we have really good arguments for why the case has been overturned. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. But actually, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but actually, Michael is not totally out of the woods. Uh, obviously, the, the, the prosecutors uh, appealed his decision, and and they, but it was upheld on appeal. Now it's in front of the Connecticut Supreme Court, and we should be hearing any day now whether Michael gets to remain free or if he's going to go back to prison or if he's going to get a new trial. Wow. And I think that uh, he's not going to get it. I don't think they're going to retry him. I would be I, amazed. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's incredible the number of people who are serving serious time for crimes that they literally didn't commit. Railroaded. It happens a lot more often than you'd like to think. It really does. Yeah. Yeah, which is scary to me. Yeah, it just goes to show you when anything like this happens, be really careful what you say to the police. Yeah. This is why I always just run. Yeah, just, yeah. (laughs) That doesn't look guilty at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You just got to, you know, dump them in a swamp somewhere. Yeah, that's it. Take them out to the marshes. I'm so glad we've got that on tape. Yeah. (laughs) You know, actually, there's a book on how to get rid of dead bodies. 
Yeah. I've seen yeah. it on your bookshelf. I know. <laughs> I guess I better hide that. Uh, let's go back to the previous night, October 30th. Ken Littleton, poor Ken, first day on the job. So he took the Skakel kids to the Bell Haven Club, which is one of those super exclusive places that wouldn't let somebody like me join. Because mm-hmm. you yeah. wouldn't be able to own a house there. So. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah. You know, I've, I've seen aerials and stuff of it, I, I, and it looks like a pretty posh little club. Yeah. Uh, they returned to the Skakel house about 8.30 to 8.45. Martha Moxley had left her house across the street uh, around 6.30 to 7, and joined up with her friends Helen Ix and Jeff Byrne. And October 30th in Bellhaven is what's called Mischief Night. Apparently Mischief Night happens in a lot of places. I mean, when I, it, it's never really been a thing in places that I've lived. I've yeah. heard of it. It's yeah. it's common enough that though I never was in an area that it happened or partook in it, yeah. I knew of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, But that's Halloween Eve, uh, and the tradition in the neighborhood is for the kids to go out and, and pull pranks. You know, they like ring people's doorbells and run away and throw Light eggs. a bag of dog poo and run away. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. TP uh, houses. TP houses and trees. And, egg and houses. Soap windows. Yes, yeah. egg cars. Egg and stuff yeah. is the worst. Oh, oh yeah. my God. I egg. know. One time when I was uh, home alone without my parents over a Halloween, somebody egged our house and they were like gone, you know, and I didn't know how to deal with it and it was just the worst. Hose. Mm-hmm. Get out I, the you know, hose. I was like Pressure 17. Washer. I like had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you know. Now and I for know. anybody who's listening, the first thing you hose. do is get out the garden hose and start hosing off the house because yeah. it's going to stink. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it, it can wreck your paint job in your car, so you got to oh, get yeah. cleaned off mm-hmm. fast. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, all these hijinks were accepted with good humor by the local homeowners because, after all, they were rich. And yeah, they had, they had staff. staff. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't cleaning up the mess. The uh, 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 house needed a new paint job again anyway. Yeah. Ah, big deal. Write a check. You, uh, kind of, you kind of wonder if that's the sort of tradition that gets started by the staff or, like, painters. <laughs> yeah, by, by painters, yeah. You know, where they're like, you should go egg that house. Yeah. So I found out how to get onto that, that property and uh, go ahead and just egg every house you yeah. can because I need, uh, we need some work. Yeah. Winter's coming. It's going to be yeah. slow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And there were ways into Bellhaven, by the way, if oh, you yeah. were on foot. It's just that if you're on car, they had these guard houses and gates at the, you know, at the community. Well, but... Yeah, it's like that in every community. Yeah, yeah. No no gated community is completely sealed off. Oh, no, it can't be. Yeah. So Martha Moxley, along with her friends, Helen and Jeff, stopped by the, the Skakel house um, since they were buddies with Tommy and Michael. But, of course, Tommy and Michael weren't there. They were at the Bellhaven Club with Ken Littleton. They left, but they returned a little after 9 p.m., and Michael took them out to the family's Lincoln Continental in the driveway. They all climbed in and started listening to 8-track tapes and smoking cigarettes. Ah, oh, the 8-track. The 8-track. Uh, the worst format ever. <laughs> have, have you ever listened to an 8-track tape? Uh-huh. They oh, never yeah. stop. Oh, they just... Well, I think the thing that drives you crazy is, is it always happens in the middle of your favorite song of the tape. You're going along and along. There's all of a sudden, dead. And then you hear this chunk, chunk. And it then reverses and starts playing back the other direction. <laughs> yeah, terrible format. Don't buy an 8-track. Take it yeah. Well, they're, pretty, they're still pretty popular. Oh, I'm sure everybody's got one. There's uh, a, holding there's up their a coffee website table. called 8tracks.com. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Is it it's, like the Museum of 8-tracks No, or you just make playlists. Hmm. Right. Got it. Okay. That's my only experience with 8-tracks. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You've never actually seen one in real life? Mm-mm. Yeah. Too young. Yeah. So you see that book right there? That That's the size of an 8-track. That sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're big, big cartridges. Yeah. It was, uh, anyway. Yeah, you, you young kids today don't know how good you got it with your fancy iPods. Okay, so yeah. Martha, Helen, Jeff, Tommy, and Michael are in the, the Lincoln Oh, Continental. yeah, back to our thing. Yeah, well, 
Yeah, well, the four of them were in the Smoking car. Smoking Paul Malls. And then, yeah, and then 9.15, Tommy comes out of the house, supposedly to get one of those honking big tapes out of the car. And he wound up joining them in the car. But then not long after that, around 9.20, 9.25, uh, Rush Jr., his brother the John. The oldest brother? Yeah, the oldest one. And his cousin Jim Terrian came out and told them they were going to have to get out of the car because they needed to take Jim to his house, which was about well, 11 miles away. Uh, Michael, by the way, had, had been planning to go to the Terrian's house because apparently Rush Jr. had seen an episode of Monty Python's Flying Surface. He was in a test group. Hmm. He, he, was, he was away at college at Princeton or somewhere like that or Yale or something. And apparently he'd gotten that chance to see this and he thought it was really awesome. It was. Monty Python's Flying Surface was a great show. Yes. yes. It was weird, but it was fun. Oh, awesome. yeah. It was totally off the wall, but it was great. Uh, but apparently the, the, it was the American premiere of the Flying Circus was taking place that night. And so they were going to all just go back to the Terrians and hang out and drink a beer and watch it. Because uh, this was the time when you couldn't just DVR it. And watch uh, it later. You had to see it then, or you weren't going to see it again. Pretty much, yeah. And if, I guess maybe I don't know why they couldn't just stay there. To uh, watch I'm going to guess that it was well. What it it would it was 75 cable access. Uh, yeah. It had to be antenna TV, but it might have been a station issue. In other words, they may not have gotten the same station at one house to the next based on the antenna setup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could have been that. In I, a neighborhood yeah. like Bellhaven, I assume that they have everything. You would think. Yeah. But the 1975, yeah, you're, you're, okay. it's, it's antenna television. Yeah, that's you, you might be rich, but you can't change the airwaves. Yeah, yeah. that easily. So that could have been it. it. It could have been something as simple as they were just going to kill two birds with one stone. Jimmy had to be home at a certain yeah, time, and, and, true. and you know, and he had a massive stash of weed. Yeah, so. probably. <laughs> His parents weren't home. Yeah, they didn't know if Ken would let them drink. You know. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, Michael, uh, before Martha exited the car, asked her if she wanted to come along, but she said she couldn't because she had a nine thirty curfew. So then Tommy, Martha, Helen, and Jeff get out of the car. Michael stays in. Russ, John, and Jim climb in. They leave to, for Jim's house, which is called Sersum Corda. I'm sorry, what? Sersum Corda. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I was more reacting to the fact that his home has a name. I know, I know, I know. Because Jimmy Terry and his family is also really stinking rich, and they had a mansion so huge that you know when, when they get to a certain size, they get to have a name of their own. Yeah. I really got to come up with a name for my house. Yeah. I and then put it on Google. I think yeah. your your house has a name already. Peewee. <laughs> <laughs> what? That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> I was going to say something way less flattering. Okay. So that left Tommy, Martha, Helen, and Jeff standing in the driveway. And apparently, according to what Helen and Jeff said to the police afterwards, Tommy and Martha were engaging in flirtatious behavior with one another. And it was kind of making them uncomfortable. Um, is so that a left. euphemism? flirtatious behavior yeah like were they like going at it or they were just flirting they were flirting and stuff and there was a little a little pushy and horseplay and stuff like that it's always weird to me when fellow teenagers are like it was making me uncomfortable yeah it was a they were flirting said she felt like a third wheel well, I was just saying, as as a dude watching another dude hitting on a girl, and he he might be maybe getting some traction. It's weird. You're just standing there, and you can't have a conversation because every time you make a joke, they ignore you. Yeah, yeah. it's 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 awkward. Yeah, right. like I said, Helen Helen felt like a third wheel. She said, mm-hmm. and so that and she had a curfew anyway, nine thirty. So she took off along with Jeff, and so that means Tommy was the last known person to see Martha alive. And Tommy's the Tommy's a seven. 17-year-old. Yeah, Michael was 15. Okay. Or was. And that's that's one reason he was a suspect for so long. Tommy, yeah. Yeah, Tommy was. Um, 
So this was about 9.20, and Tommy told police the following day, after her body was found, they, the police came by the Skakel household, and they interviewed everybody there that afternoon. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He said that he and Martha chatted for a little while, and then she left around 9.30. And then he went back inside the house to work on a, a report for school about Abraham Lincoln, which turned out to be a lie. Uh <sighs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because police checked at Tommy's school. They found out Tommy hadn't been assigned any such report. Uh, and also, Ken Littleton, the tutor, he was also he was supposed to be keeping an eye on the kids. He did a bed check uh, and about 9.45, and uh, he said that Tommy wasn't there. But Tommy said that, well, he, he stepped across the hallway to a guest room to get a book for his report, and he stayed there to work on it. Hmm. Probably, probably also another lie. Um, that house was big enough, though. He could have theoretically been anywhere. He could yeah. have been somewhere watching TV. He just wasn't in bed. Yeah, yeah. No, he just he just wasn't in his bed. And he changed his story in summer the summer of 1992. Well, more about that later. But he was with Martha longer than he actually said. So six, 17 years? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a while, but uh, he finally changed his story. A lot of people in this story, a lot of people changed their stories in this one. I mean, a lot. Of I guess, do. I mean, it does... <sighs> We're talking about, like, kids. Yeah. Really. 15, 16, 17. Like, these people are kids, and they may not totally understand, especially... I'm sorry if any of our listeners are, you know, super rich, but, like, the super rich kids that I've ever met really mm. have that mentality of, like, like, it does, like I'll get away with it. It doesn't matter. Mm. Or they don't understand the, like, severity of... If you're 15 and you're trying to, you know, not get in trouble for like sleeping with a girl, you're not necessarily going to be like, oh yeah, well, we had sex, mm -hmm. and then you know, this maybe this is not the accurate example, right? But you're not going to say, oh yeah, we had sex, and then I came home. You're going to say like, no, 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 I'm perfect, yeah, right? And then what? 14, 15 years later, when you kind of realize like, oh, not that big that was of a dumb. deal. That yeah. was dumb. You yeah. might come out and admit that. I mean, it, yeah, it's shady. Mm -hmm. But it's not such a huge problem to me, I guess. Well, yeah, no, there's that. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Here. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, he uh, he was with, turns out he really was with Martha for about 20 minutes longer than he said, which puts him with Martha right about the time of the murder, or okay. right up to it. Okay. Minutes away. According to the time, one timeline. Yeah, according to one. Um, uh, meanwhile, meantime, of course, Russ Jr., John, and Michael were over at Jimmy Terrian's watching Monty Python, and they got back home around 11.20 p.m., and they gave that statement to the police uh, on the 31st. Uh, and Michael later, later changed his story, too, which is what landed him in jail eventually. Okay. Uh, at the same time the Skakel boys got home, John Moxley, Mar who was Martha's brother, 17, also arrived home. And his mother, Dorothy, told him that Martha wasn't home yet and that she was really worried. And I saw an interview with John on Unsolved Mystery. It was done years after. There's a little bit of humor in this. I like this. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he said that when she first said that, his initial reaction was, um, and I'm paraphrasing everything, he said, well, well, for once, it's little Miss Perfect who's home late, not me, unquote. Right. Which obviously he, was not a good thing. Well, in, he didn't know. After he the didn't, fact. He didn't know. Yeah, after the fact, know. we know this, but... Yeah. Uh, and I'm making note of that because uh, a lot has been made about Martha's curfew and how scrupulous she was about obeying her, coup her curfew. It's been kind of a big bone of contention because if she would obey her, cur her curfew, if she was obedient to her curfew, she would not have stayed out until way, way late, right? In order to be murdered by Michael or well, with, God knows. With maybe know. like one exception, right? I mean, mm. right? I mean, you can say this was the first time she stayed out late. Yeah, you could. Or the f one of the first times. Yeah. 
Well, uh, it, there's a lot of argument about that. Mark Furman claims in his book that she had violated her curfew by many hours just a week before, but he doesn't cite any actual sources for that or documentation. I, I was going to say, I, I'm glad you said sources because in your script you say documentation, and that's like my favorite thing. Like Dorothy, the mom, was sitting there, you know, with a nightly with a log. 10.54 p.m. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Martha still not home. Yeah, I didn't mean that kind of thing. I just, <laughs> I just meant, I, I, he doesn't say where he got We're that. We're docking her all. allowance. Yeah. 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 Right. No, uh, I mean, I think, the other, you know, again, it's like she's 15. She's probably starting to push the bounds of her curfew a little bit. Oh. 9.30 seems like maybe it's an early curfew. Yeah. Um, and especially on a night like that, or if she was getting involved with someone or something like that, she may be trying to test it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but staying out till two in the morning, I'm not so sure. I'm, well, you know. yeah, probably not staying out till two in the morning and probably not like all the time. Yeah, you know, no, every, that, like once every couple of weeks by a half hour. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's 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 relevant just to the for the establishment of the time of death. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So what is what is the official time of death? Well, the police set it at uh, 10 p.m., right around 9.45 to maybe 10, to maybe as late as 10.15. They're using a kind of a half-hour window? Yeah, right in okay. there. And the reason they're putting it at that is that the, the X dog, Helen X, lived across Walsh Lane uh, in, a, in a nice big mansion, of course. She and her family lived across Walsh Lane to the north, and they had a, a, an Australian shepherd named Zock. And apparently, Zock was a bit of a barker. But that night at about 9.45 p.m., he started barking really furiously and super intensely. And so that's it's thinking, it's, it's thought that the assault was beginning right about that time mm. when he started barking. So this that is a Holmesian mystery. Yeah, the dog that did bark. Mm. Yeah. Also, there's... Uh, and Mark Furman cited and said that he thought she had violated her curfew by a lot because he wanted to be able to expand the time window for the time of death. And I, you know what? I kind of agree with him. A little bit. I think that the police's reasoning for mm-hmm. this timeline is like weird to me. Mm-hmm. But... Well, actually, the the police uh, the police went and got themselves one of the, the primary forensic the medical examiners in the country. A guy, the guy from Houston, Texas, who had done thousands, if not tens of thousands, of murders and everything, and and, asked, and presented all everything the the autopsy reports and and all the reports about you know dogs barking and and everything else. And and he set the time of death at 10 p.m. So it wasn't just the, the local Greenwich PD who did this. I mean, right, got, and he did that based on uh, contents of her uh, stomach. Also the contents of the well, stomach Well, that's the part intestines. that kind of gives me a bit of a, a pause. Yeah. Here, yeah. Well, yeah, because Martha had had a, a grilled cheese sandwich about 6.30, 6, 6.30. So that was gone from her stomach. Mm-hmm. So And the stomach takes uh, two to four hours to clear food. So that means she could easily have been uh, killed around 10. Uh, but her... Stomach also had three ounces of fluid in it, and she had had a Coke at the Skakels, or at least part of a Coke. Mm-hmm. And the stomach obviously clears liquids a lot faster than it clears solids. Right. Uh, and so she still, so the fact that she still had that after drinking all or part of a Coke at the Skakels indicates that she was not murdered hours and hours and hours after that yeah. time she was at the Unless at she had been somewhere for hours and hours and then drank three or four ounces of something, uh, which would yeah. then be in her stomach. Yeah, there, then, there's, yeah. there's a little bit of uh, there is, the there... logic mm-hmm. isn't completely perfect. Right, because it yeah. assumes that that Coke at the Skeggles was the very last thing she drank. Yeah, because no, it's yeah. the last yeah, confirmable you thing. You don't, know but... what she was, you don't know what she was out yeah. and about doing. I also... Uh, yeah. But but the reason I think the time of the time of death was around ten is that if she was seen anywhere, if she was out and about, she was a sociable person. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't have just wandered around in the darkness mm. and, and and not met up with somebody. 
and she would have been seen by somebody, and she wasn't, but not by anybody. Mm. Um, and so that's my major reason for thinking that she yeah. could not have gone somewhere else. So, yeah. yeah, right around ten was yeah. was okay. the time of death. This this whole thing actually has me asking this very morbid question of like, yeah, but when you're going undergoing um, an assault, like a really severe assault, like she underwent, uh, is your body still processing food? Right? Is your know. body still processing liquid? So like if she was being beat over the period of, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, does that affect the time? Mm-hmm. That's just something that like popped into my head. I Realistically, that going. doesn't change the timeline that much, but... Yeah. I just started to think about that as a really macabre question uh, that I uh, you know, guess I should ask one of our experts about that's it. That's what point. I was about yeah. to suggest. Yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. I don't know. Good question. So listeners, if you weren't just like totally turned off by that and you have the answer, <laughs> email us. Yeah, please do. Uh, back to the night of the 30th, Dorothy Moxley fell asleep in her couch. That's Martha's mom, remember? And mm-hmm. woke up around 1.30. Martha still wasn't home. And Dorothy was getting pretty worried by this time. So she wakes John up. Uh, and asked him to go out looking for Martha. And John said he drove around for a few hours looking, but found no sign of Martha. Uh, and then he went home and went to sleep in the TV room in the basement, apparently. And during this time, Dorothy's calling all around for basically anybody that knows Martha and um, called, the, called the Skakels, obviously, and a lot of other people. And nobody This is knew. the next morning. This is the, the, the wee hours of October 31st. Wow, I'm sure they were all really happy about that. Yeah, I'm sure they were. But, I'm sure they were understanding about it. Though. Yeah, she had reason to be yeah. scared, you know. But uh, And then about 8.30 in the morning of the 31st, Dorothy went over to the Skakos to ask if they had seen Martha. Michael Skakel had fallen asleep in his clothes on his bed. And when Dorothy saw him, she said that he was pale and looked a little frayed around the edges. Uh, but he, he had had a lot to drink the night before. I didn't maybe mention what they went to the Bell, the Bellhaven Club. They all drank alcohol mm. and stuff and continued to drink after they got back to the house. So got it. And a... as teenagers, they don't know what they're doing. So. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, yeah. they know what they're doing. Getting oh. drunk is what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. They don't know what they're doing when oh, it comes to yeah. their booze. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, so Michael had just woken up, but, and so he had... And he was wearing his clothes. He was wearing his clothes from the night before, yeah. So he yeah. had passed out. Yeah, he passed out. He, was he didn't bare... fall asleep, he passed yeah, out. He, he, he yeah. took his shoes off and then just conked out. But yeah. also, like, I'd like to clarify, he was wearing his clothes from the night before. Mm-hmm. He wasn't, like, missing his blood-soaked pants somewhere. No, I mean, okay. I, I, I don't know if he was wearing the exact same clothes that he was wearing the night the, that night before when he went over to the Tarian's house. He was mm-hmm. wearing clothes. Theoretically, he was wearing the same clothes if he woke went to sleep in his clothes, though. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In theory. Okay. I mean, yeah, there's no reason to come home, take off your bloodstained clothes, and then and then get redressed and go to bed. Yeah, you yeah. would put your PJs on. You probably, or just you know go to bed in your underwear or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Michael searched the house uh, and the grounds of the, and the, of the house, and then their gardener, Franz Vitin, went and checked their RV. They had this RV called a Revcon. I don't know what brand that is, but check that because sometimes... Probably big they, and expensive. Oh, I'm sure it was the best there was, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, apparently, you know, she... Uh, well, apparently Martha and the, and the kids like to party in the Revcon occasionally, so that was worth checking. But Martha was not there. Uh, so about noon, Martha's friend, Sheila McGuire, who was also 15... Uh, and she lived in a house just to the south of the Moxley house. She was cutting across the Moxley yard, headed towards Walsh Lane, when she spotted Martha's body under the big pine tree. Mm. And so she goes to the Moxley house to, to tell them what she's seen. 
Because, oh, by the I didn't mention, by the way, I mean, the whole neighborhood knows by this time, and, and the whole neighborhood is out. Yeah, because they were woken up at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like, have you everybody. seen my daughter? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. a lot of people were out looking for Martha, and, and then Sheila just happens to find her by accident. Uh, you'll be happy to know she was never a suspect, uh, by the way. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the police are called, and uh, again, the first two Greenwich policemen who showed up confirmed that she was dead, called for more troops, and then and again, they noticed the handle of the golf club sticking out of her neck. And in fact, one of them mentioned it to his wife that night when he got home. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah. And she remembered him saying that, too. Well, it's uh, pretty grisly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty brutal murder. And, of course, the Moxley family doctor was called in to confirm that she was actually dead. And he noticed the golf club handle laying on the ground next to Martha. Um, so, again, remember the golf club handle. And Dorothy, for her part, did not go outside just to view Martha's body, understandably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she, didn't want, she didn't want that to be her last memory of Martha. No. You know, I can't blame her for that. Uh, the initial theory by the police and the people of Greenwich was that uh, it was committed by some random transient who'd wandered through the neighborhood. So we're on theories now. Uh, well, not, not, really. quite, not quite there, but that was that was the, the initial theory. That was it, the working theory of uh, the yeah. police. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that was what everybody, because everybody thought, I mean, oh my God, this is, this is Bellhaven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. This is like, these are the best people in, on earth. No, there's no murderers living in our town. But maybe there was. Um, of course, Tommy Skakel was the last person to see Martha alive, so he was grilled pretty good. In fact, the night of the 31st, they hauled him down. After questioning Tommy and all the other kids, they hauled Tommy down to the police station and grilled him for about six hours. Well, that's yeah. got to suck, because you know he was to put a lot of work into his Halloween costume and didn't get to use it. I know, it. I know, the poor guy. Well, that kind of sucks for Michael, too, because he and Martha had made plans to go trick-or-treating on the night of the 31st, and, well, his date was gone, so yeah. let's scotch that. yeah. Uh, the police, uh, while they were over on the 31st at, at the Skakel household, uh, they, of course, they are already established by finding the pieces of the golf club that it was a Tony Penna golf club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, two, a couple of Greenwich policemen noticed that there was a Tony Penna golf club, which was a four iron. Uh, the, the murder weapon was, was a Tony Penna six iron. Uh, they noticed this four iron in a barrel in the family's mudroom. The barrel mm-hmm. had the barrel had you know what whatever you would have in your mudroom you know umbrellas, umbrella stand or cage, whatever it is, yeah, whatever. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So they noticed this. Uh, two days later, they came back and they asked permission to search the house. Number one, and they asked permission to take the four iron, which was still there in the barrel. And so they took that, and of course, it was engraved with uh, the words Mrs. R. K. Skakel on the handle. And they did search. The, according to the police, they searched the Skakel house pretty thoroughly and didn't find anything. So eventually, this case kind of uh, kind of went cold. I mean, they they investigated Tommy for a long time. They they questioned him many times. They gave him polygraphs twice, uh, which were inconclusive. And uh, they inter- they inter- they really went after a bunch of other people too. I mentioned Candle Littleton, and I'll talk about a few others also. But then eventually, the case went cold until the 1990s. And then there was a sudden. From the, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here. But there, this, there was this rumor that came out uh, during the, the rape trial of William Kennedy Smith, who was another Kennedy cousin. Uh, There's a and, lot of Kennedy cousins. Yeah. There's a lot of Kennedys. Yeah, there are. And so he was on trial for rape, and of course that received national attention. Uh, some of the tabloids, for some reason, started circulating a rumor that he had been present at the Skakel household on the night of the murder. And it's, that I wasn't true. I love the tabloids. Oh, yeah, you got to love the press, I know. But... But, of course, it wasn't true, but that brought some more attention back to this case because it was long, long since cold. Maybe and, 15, 20 and, years at that point. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Police announced they were going to, like, look into the case again. And at this point, 
Rushton Sr., a.k.a. Rucky, was really tired of living under this cloud of suspicion. It was mainly over Tommy. Mm -hmm. And um, That's right. He, he commissioned the report. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In 92, he, uh, he hired a group called Sutton, uh, Sutton Investigations. To, and they were, these were a bunch of former like FBI agents and stuff, and they were a private investigation organization. He said, oh, we want you to solve this case. You know, sky's the limit on one time it comes to the cash. And so they... Uh, Fully expecting that it was going to exonerate his entire family. Well, yeah, Whoops. because... Yeah, well, because if he, knew, if he knew it was a member of his family, why the hell would you do something like that? Yeah. Right? I mean, so, yeah, he hired them to do this, and uh, that's when things kind of, like, got out of hand. They, uh, they, were, they were questioning Tommy and Michael, and Tommy... Well, Michael changed his story. Turns out he didn't just go straight to bed when he got home. He actually went back out. And um, went to go window peeping. There was this this, this Tommy lady. Tommy or Michael? Uh, uh, Michael did. That's okay. Tommy? Yeah. So Michael went out to go window peeping. Apparently there was some local lady who liked to walk around naked uh, and sometimes after dark. And so he, Which to a 15-year-old boy is that's... is just irresistible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, In yeah. the 70s particularly, right? I mean, oh, before yeah, the internet. That's a good point, too. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it turns out her, uh, her her lights were out and there was no action there. So he said that, had this thought that, well, hey, you know, maybe I'll go by the, go by the Moxley's house and See if I can wake up Martha, you know, and uh, see if she wants see if she wants to make out or something. Actually, I think his his words were maybe I'll see if I can get a kiss from Martha. She likes me, so he climbs a tree that outside in the front of the house and tosses a few pebbles at her window and and, and calls at her name and gets no response. And it's believed that she he actually was outside a second story window that was actually John her brother John's bedroom. Well, that wouldn't have gone a good yeah. If somebody had been home, he would not have been happy with the results he got. Yeah, not really. Uh, and Martha's bedroom was actually on the third floor. She had the entire third floor to herself. And so he was, he had totally had the wrong room. But John, John, I think was at that point was downstairs watching the the evening news with his mother. Mm. So he wasn't at, he wasn't in the bedroom. Uh, so Michael at that point, uh, um, I don't know, a tactful way to put this, he started masturbating. That's as tactful as it can be said. Just yeah. like sitting in the tree outside of John's bedroom. Yeah, he decided to just start playing a little pocket pool. And okay. According to Mark Furman, he reached orgasm. According to RFK Jr., he did not. He he realized he suddenly realized what a stupid thing he was doing, and so he put it away, climbed back down out of the tree, and left. He walked towards. Yeah. Question. Yeah. Why does it matter? What's that? If, if he, he reached, reached completion. completion or not. Because uh, if he reached completion, then he would have left some DNA evidence at the scene. Which nobody collected anything at that Yeah, location. on a branch in a tree, like next to a window on mm -hmm. the other side of the house. Yeah. Well, it was thought, my, and Mark Furman, uh, and there was, there was one other guy, an old childhood classmate of Michael's named Andy Pugh. Well, Michael, this guy was a piece of work himself, but yeah. Yeah, my Andy, yeah, Andy reestablished contact with, Andy, uh, with Michael, and Michael was thinking, like, you know, hey, let's, let's start hanging out, you know, it's been too long, we should, we should you know, get to know each other again, and all yada yada, and Andy said, look, you know, I really have to know what's, what really happened with Martha before I can really in good conscience do this, and, and so Michael told him this story. This was back about 1985, I think, and turns out the guy was still a prep school jerk. Yeah, and, and Andy Andy Pugh, uh, when he heard about the, him climbing the tree, he assumed it was the pine tree underneath which the body had been found. Uh, I see. Okay. Because 
Well, for one thing, I mean, I, all the kids in the neighborhood climbed that tree. It was a big tree with you know, big, big, strong, well-spaced mm -hmm. branches, and it was a great climbing tree. But it was 160 feet away from the Moxley house. Mm. So you can't exactly climb that tree and toss pebbles at Martha's right. window. Yeah, so that's, that's not, not a good there. spying tree. Yeah. And, and it's also on the wrong side of the house. Okay. I mean, so the tree... Even needs, worse, yeah. spying right. tree. Yeah. Okay, and, so it's kind of just like... Uh, Furman's just like dragging his name through the mud a little bit by saying like, and he reached orgasm and 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 and, and got it all over the body. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, look at but, look at what a perv this guy is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and, is the but, intention? Yeah. Well, and and what what he was saying is that uh, Michael changed his story in 1992 because at that time DNA evidence was becoming a thing. Mm. Yeah. So he was but, trying uh, to explain away. So he was trying to explain away the presence of his semen. But on I the don't body. think yeah. there was semen on the body. No, no. Okay. no, there wasn't. Great, just wanted to clear that up yeah. real quick here. No, no, but you know, interestingly, um, at the trial in 2002, the prosecution said that there was. Even and though, yet, but it was lost. Let me guess, it was lost. Well, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen any evidence that there ever was any semen that was even collected. Yeah, yeah. You would think that if they had collected it, they would have gone ahead and had it run and just marched into court and said, printed up the results on a giant placard and said, guess who? Yeah, well, they, yeah, I mean, they could definitely, even before the advent of DNA, they could still get all kinds of information out of that stuff. Yeah. Bodily fluid, you can get blood type and, and other stuff, you know? You I can like find that them. you're calling it the advent of DNA. Yeah, whatever, but... DNA testing? Can, yeah, I guess DNA <laughs> testing. Yeah, good DNA's point. been well, no, around DNA for just a came into DNA's, been a, DNA's been around for at least several hundred years. At least. Yeah, yeah. At least, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, okay, so so anyway, that but that's that's Furman's theory of it is that is that uh, that's what that's why he made up this story in 1992. And so uh, suspicion Michael had never been a suspect in this case, and suddenly suspicion shifted to him because and, he admitted to being a peeping tom. Uh, because, or trying because to be. he because he no there was he, no trying he it, was. it really looked when I first heard this story and I and I heard that tale about about the whole thing in the tree and everything I I thought oh that's it he's guilty of sin he's obviously trying to explain away the presence of DNA mm -hmm. on the body and so he actually had an explanation for it he had actually talked about this like I said to Andy Pugh I think in the mid eighties and he also had another guy named Michael Michael Meredith who was a, who was a guy that he had been. Michael, by the way, not too long after the murder, was shipped off to this school for troubled children mm. called Elon. It's in Maine. And, and there they had this sort of brutal regimen where they, you know, they did beat people and got in their faces and everything. For kids that had drug and alcohol problems. Mm. A boot camp situation, kind of. Yeah, boot camp, except like even more brutal. Right. I mean, well, yeah. it was the 70s. Uh, so yeah. they tough love was bloody your nose. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so in 1987, Michael Meredith was living temporarily with Michael Skagel Skagel because mm -hmm. uh, they were working on they were working on the, the possibility of like a sort of tell-all book about about Elon and schools like Elon mm. and the whole scandal mm -hmm. about that mm -hmm. and and so uh, at, at that point he told Michael Meredith that story also which don't ask me why that's not a story I would be telling anybody uh yeah no yeah that no nah, yeah and and also RFK Jr. says he told him that story back in the early 80s so you know again Michael, Michael maybe talks a little bit too much. I was going to say, he may just have a very poor filter. Yeah, he sounds like he doesn't have I a mean, very good filter. Yeah, yeah. I, I know guys that tell you things and you're like, what? Why? No, no, TMI, don't, dude. Don't, don't ever tell anybody that again. That's... Alternately, you know, somebody did say to him, those are situations where they said, well, what really happened with the whole Martha Moxley? Like, you, you know something more, don't you? And he said, yeah, okay, yes. 
I, you know, this is actually what happened. Yeah. I, I was trying to protect myself. You know, I was 17. 17? He was 17. 15. 15. I was 15. You know, I didn't know better. I thought I was going to get in huge trouble for being this peeping Tom. Oh, and, yeah. Oh, no. You, you know, so I Oh, yeah. No, tell. if the cops had caught him whacking it, they, he'd have been in serious trouble. No, yeah. I'm sure his dad but wouldn't so have been I'm happy sure either. That, you know, oh, yeah. in his 15-year-old mind, it was better to just lie than tell the truth. And oh, then, yeah. you know, again, no, later, he realized, like, yeah. all right, I'll just, you know, I've told enough people. I can say, hey, I had this problem when I was a child, and it's better right. now, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so I I don't think that it's all that suspicious that he lied the night the, the day after the murder. I agree. Yeah, I don't think yeah. it is. I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be telling that story, but I no. I just wouldn't have changed my story later. Right. No. Yeah. Not yeah. really. Should we get into theories here? Yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I think I, I think I think we've much, we've got the whole thing laid out. Got I think it out we're ready there. For right. It. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of suspects here. First off, of course, the random transient theory, which is silly. Yeah, it is. No, it's my favorite. Yeah, because as I said, Martha was found with her panties rolled down, um, which indicates that the attacker was somebody that she knew. That's what—that's certainly the inference that the police uh, drew from this. And so, your average stranger on a dark night, dark cold night, you're gonna just roll down, pull down your pants and roll down your pants. Fifteen-year-old girl, no. Uh, yeah, so the so. one thing that okay, I was I was joking when I was saying this is my favorite theory, but I don't necessarily agree with the it had to be somebody that she knew. I mean, it could very well have been a threat that was gonna lead to a sexual assault. I mean, somebody could have had a knife to her throat and said. You pull down your pants and you pull down your underwear or I'm going to slit your throat. Okay, but mm, yeah. question. If somebody had a knife to her, why beat her with a golf club and stab her with the golf club? Why not just kill her with a knife? Maybe they had the golf club across her neck. I don't know. You're mm. choking her, saying, I will choke the life out of you if you don't pull your pants down. Seems for... like there would be some markings there. I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying that Well, I, mean, I a... don't think that it is so outlandish as the both of you do. Well, there is an alternative theory, which, of course, is it, she got whacked once on the head, which is enough to, to you know... Disorient. Disorient, or maybe even KO her pretty good, and then her pants and panties get pulled down, and then and then a more brutal beating takes place after that. Because something so, happens right. Yeah. Yeah, so even though I, I kind of suspect it was somebody she knew, um, you know, I've got I, I to say it, it is possible. That, well, and, and I, I will fully admit that a random transient just happening to wander into this gated community and not be seen by anybody and not raise any alarms, I find that mm. very suspicious. I don't think that it probably happened, but I also can't yeah. say that this evidence of it couldn't have been. I don't say. I just don't agree with it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. But the other the other reason is there's so many other good suspects. Huh. And, uh, Are there really? Yeah. Okay. Let's let's have one. Okay. Our next guy, Franz Vitin, uh, who I think was uh, born in Yugoslavia, had served in the German army in World War II, and an all around weirdo. Yeah, kind of a strange guy. He lived in the in a basement apartment. He was their gardener, the Skakel's gardener. He lived in an apartment in the basement, and uh, his wife at that on that weekend was away so it was just him in the apartment so and he had a he had an exit from the house that would have allowed him you know to get out murder martha come back undetected uh-huh. which doesn't doesn't prove anything but uh, the skakel kids said that sometimes dry, well, he, he would tell them really strange stories from world war ii about how they would you know he and the, the other german soldiers would go around raping women and stuff 
which is kind of a strange thing to be saying to a bunch of teenage kids. Um, teenage dudes, though? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Well, but you got you to also remember that he... He probably was messed with a lot by the kids. They probably made fun of him, and they probably screwed with him a lot. He, if he was in the war, it wasn't uncommon for guys to shell shock, to have mm. shell shock. So he's got some issues because of that. So he's just like, you know what? Uh, I think it's okay to tell you little j- different word I was going to use, you little jerks who are screwing with me all the time, a story that I know is going to really screw you up a little bit and get you back. Uh-huh. Maybe. I, I, I don't know. But... I mean, it, it, again, this is this is right up there with, with Mr. Ed as a, a reasoning. Yeah, he's... Uh, well, and, and well, the, the only other thing that uh, makes him look even possibly good is um, no, there were no, there were diary entries in Martha's in Martha's diary. Did I mention? I didn't mention Martha had a diary. No, mm-hmm. no, you yeah. haven't brought this up yet. Martha had a diary. Yeah, and eventually wound up in the hands of the prosecution. But uh, there were entries in there relating to Franz. He was referred to as Frank in there, and uh, she talked about how she was really creeped out by Frank. And and thought he was really a scary guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, understandably, and afterwards, before well, Dorothy Moxley uh, started reading Martha's diary after the death to see if there was any good information in there. Obviously, and she asked some of some of Martha's friends, like, "Who is Frank?" Because she seems to really be a, really afraid of Frank. I believe it was Sheila McGuire who identified him as Franz Vitine. That mm-hmm. was that what that that could only be Franz. Hmm. It was Frank, and apparently. After the prosecution of the police took the diary and kept it in evidence for many years, Dorothy spent years lobbying to get it back. By the time they get, she got it back, the pages relating to Frank had been removed. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, Franz did, he did take a lie detector test, which he passed, and so they dropped him as a suspect. He's a cold-hearted uh, Nazi. Of course, he passed. Yeah, that's true. He didn't have a sociopath. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think he's a good candidate no. for this. No, nah, there's not really much of anything to tie him to this crime. So let's move on to our next uh, suspect here, which is Ken Littleton, uh, the live-in tutor. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He um, well, there was again no physical evidence connecting Kenny to the crime um, at all, and no, not not nothing that connects anybody really. Uh, the thing about Kenny is he uh, he lost his job with the Skakels a few months after the murder because he was drunk and he and he crashed their car and left the, apparently left the accident scene so he kind of got fired by Rucky mm-hmm. uh, and so he uh, after that he was sort of drifting around he got a job as a bouncer in a bar up in, uh, in I don't know, Providence or somewhere like that or it's weird that uh, he went from working at a, a high class school and being a tutor to quite quickly. Not doing that kind of work, and I wonder if it's he not got weird to me. Well, I was wondering if he got blacklisted. I'm sure he because got because the Skakels were like, "This guy, no." No, the Skakels didn't blacklist him. No, well, no. What happened is um, he kept his job teaching, but then in the summer, well, you, as, as a teacher, you, you know, you go. He went up to like I can't remember where if it was. It wasn't Fire Island, and I can't remember where it was. But okay, yeah, but he he went to this beach community where he'd, he'd hung out the summer before and, and got a job as a bouncer in a bar and hung out and stuff. Okay, and, but he started. So it was just kind of a summer job. Yeah, thing. kind Got of a it. summer job kind of dealy. But he did, went on a little crime wave. He broke into some some houses and businesses and stole stuff. Uh, uh, he was okay. he was um, he broke into one woman's apartment. She had left a window uh, window open. And he he removed the screen, climbed in, and she woke up to find him lying naked on top of her. Oh, and, oh. Yeah. 
He did a lot of stuff like that. He, uh, I'm sorry, I, occasional... I ascribed more time between that and the Skakel thing. So never yeah. mind. He had a bit of a mental breakdown, is what we're saying. Yeah, his behavior was uh, his behavior was strange, and and so what happened is that what eventually the police uh, found out about these crimes, uh, the Greenwich police did, and so they went, they ratted him out to the school that he worked at, and so he immediately got fired, of mm-hmm. course. And okay, and then, so now I understand why he gets blacklisted. Okay, and, and it, and, well, he didn't get blacklisted then, but then he oh got a job God. teaching at another school. Oh my God! And yeah, and the, and the, the police went immediately went down there and ratted him out again, That's so he good. got fired again. And so yeah, things kind of were kind of going downhill for Ken. Yeah, it's days like these that I'm happy that the internet exists, so yeah. that like the police don't have to actually track people anymore. Yeah, that mm-hmm. there's like a database because that'll sadly... be like, hey. Don't hire this person because they like to break in and lay naked on strangers. Because sadly, there was a time where there was a lot of departments that just were overworked and they couldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, another another odd thing that happened is that uh, Tommy went into Ken's room in the house. Ken was sitting there watching The French Connection. Remember that movie? Gene Hackman? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Back in those days, I don't know if they even still do this because I don't watch TV anymore, but the networks in those days would run theatrical release movies, you know, like, say, 9 to 11 or whatever. Right? They don't yeah. do that anymore. Yeah, they don't do that anymore? No, God, okay. no. Yeah, and so, but they, they used to do it back in those days, so the French Connection was showing uh, on TV, and, and so Tommy went into his room at about 10, 15 and started watching the movie, because there's this big, huge, famous chase scene in the movie. And so he stayed for the through the end of the, the the whole chase scene. So that sort of maybe kind of kind of makes Tommy look a little better as far as you know. Tommy Skakel, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, Tommy, because you know, he would he have had time to murder Martha and then get all cleaned up and then go in there and watch TV with Ken? Well, we'll talk about that. But, but uh, so he so Tommy was able to provide an alibi for Ken. They yeah. kind of alibied each other. each other. They kind of alibied each other. But alibied. Uh, one of the things that Tommy noticed, though, that was kind of strange, is he said it was warm in the room, and yet the whole time that, that he was there watching The French Connection, Kenny was covered with a blanket from head to toe. I mean, not not his face, but, I mean, from his from the bottom of his chin all the way he was covered like with a blanket. Like he was laying in bed? No, he was no, he was sitting in a chair. Oh, but... Yeah, but sitting in a chair or a, a recliner or something like that, but he was covered with a blanket. Hmm. Tommy thought that was a little strange. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> You know what? I have laid around and watched TV, and it is very easy to get a bit of a chill. It's October. Mm. Yes, the heat is on, but it's a little little bit of a chill, and I'm just going to throw a blanket on. This is a conversation mm. I have actually a lot with my boss, because we share an office. And he, the like, his job is very, like, get up and go, right? He gets up, he's often, like, around, and then he comes back into the office, whereas I'm sitting at my desk the whole time. Yeah. So you have, and you I'll have, have the heat, heat on. Issue. You got the yeah. heat issue. Yeah. And he comes in and he's like, it is boiling in here. What are you doing? And I can also imagine that it's that sort of situation that, you know, Tommy's been out. He's been drinking. He's he hanging out with back, You know, he's like, oh, it's warm in this room. And Ken's been sitting in there and he's like, it is cold. I'm going to put a blanket on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily prove much of anything. Well, but it's also a little weird. And yeah. there's also the, there is a huge body temperature difference perception of teenagers yeah. to the rest of the adult world. That's true, and your, your metabolism is slowing it down a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I see I see them, you know, teenagers this time of year running around, it's 60 degrees, and they're in a pair of basketball shorts, and that's it. Yeah. And they're like, man, it is so hot out. It's like, what? Yeah. But also, again, you know, again, I, I presume that Ken, new to his job, 
hadn't been drinking nearly as much as the rest of the kids. Probably not. Right? He was trying to take responsibility. So if Tommy had been drinking the whole night or had been making out with a girl Mm -hmm. and came back in. His blood be pumping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so Ken is, uh, he, he seems to have been pretty much cleared, I think. Yeah. Uh, there, there was, there was some discussion that, uh, among police and everybody that he maybe had, was a serial killer. I because, think the police are dumb. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well. Not overall, I'm well, sorry, he, but just if, in but that case. People, like, like some, some, some women got bludgeoned to death in various places that were not far from places that he was living. But that doesn't necessarily mean much. No. You know? I was going to say, it, women have been bludgeoned to death not far away from places that you've lived. Mm-hmm. And yet, as far as I'm aware, it wasn't you. No, I don't think it was. And that guy who's serving time, he he seems to have probably been the, the, the culprit. So. Most likely. Yeah. Well, I think Kenny has been kind of cleared because in 1998 they had a, a grand jury. And in Connecticut law, is, you can have what's called a grand jury of one, where you basically the judge, there's a one judge who is the jury. He decides if there's probable cause and so if it's really worth you know indicting somebody. And so they brought Kenny Littleton in, but under Connecticut law, he had to be immunized. Mm. So he could confess to killing Martha, and there would not have been a thing they could do because as long as he told the truth, you know, about whatever. And I, as you have to assume that they asked Kenny then. That, oh, immunity! I'm oh, sorry, I yeah. was like immunized. He's got to yeah. get a shot. Yeah, yeah, judicial <laughs> yeah, immunity. Yeah. He, uh, <laughs> uh, so presumably they asked him if he had murdered Martha, and presumably Kenny said no. Of course, he could have lied, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. But... You know, saying you're, you're telling a guy he has immunity and that guy believing it can be very two different things. I've seen yeah. CSI. I know what's up. Yeah. I watch Law & Order. I know. Yeah. Let's say that Kenny, let's say that Kenny really did do it, okay. but he wanted to lie about it. But at this time, you know, this is like hard times for Kenny. He's had a rough life. Right, he's been sort of like you know floating from job to job and place to place. Suppose he really did did it. You know what I would do if I had been Ken? I would have gotten the skakels and I would have said, "Hey, tell you what, if you give me a suitcase full of cash, I'll go into that jury room, that grand jury room, and I will tell them that I murdered Martha Moxley. Yeah, and that'll be the end of it for all of you. Yeah, you know? and just make sure it's cash in twenties, in twenties, non sequential. Uh huh. Yeah, and just do that. Well, and and I'm amazed. I mean, you you say that with a bit of humor, but I, I'm amazed that there's always this talk of Kennedy families having all this money and they can buy whatever they need. And I'm amazed that nobody has walked up and said it was me having been paid for said testimony. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not trying to cast anything negative against him. It's just that there is, you know, you've got a lot of money. You can just have a, you can convince a guy that for X amount of money, take the fall, dude. Well, you know, especially, you know, in the case of Kenny, suppose Kenny didn't do it. Mm-hmm. They still, you know, you, you kind of, and, and suppose somebody in the Skakel family did do it mm-hmm. and they're rich and they're, of course, all powerful and everything. And uh, wouldn't they, wouldn't they have offered him like a, a suitcase full of cash yeah, in order to, that, do, that's to, my to thing. lie and say you they did think. it? You know, you'd think they would have, you know. Well, even today, I mean, if they have all this money and power, of course, the Skakels are not wealthy anymore, unfortunately. No. But, um, you know, if they had all this money and power, they could, they could give somebody a suitcase full of cash to confess to the crime. And since somebody's already been convicted of the crime, well, good luck getting a commission of somebody else. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Tommy Skakel. Uh, well, I, he, again, he was a favorite for a long time. He, um, well, let's see. He last to see Martha alive. 
Tommy had a head injury when he was young, very young, and that caused a change in his behavior. Mm-hmm. He was prone to violent outbursts. I mean, very violent, where he had to be physically restrained. And mm-hmm. he, would, he would damage things, break things, and... Um, Did he? And but that seems like the sort of thing that takes hours to calm down from, right? Usually, well, not necessarily. But uh, I think it was either his sister or his brother, or, or maybe it was Michael, who said that he was like, like milk boiling on a stove. You ever mm. seen? You ever seen? You ever boiled milk? Yep. You know how it looks like totally calm, and then mm-hmm. and then the next second it's just like boosh, it's up over the sides of the pan and all mm-hmm. over. The, all yeah, that's, yeah. He said it was he was like that. So it, it took nothing apparently to set him off. And uh, also, Ken Littleton was not sure afterwards. He he thought that perhaps Tommy had changed his clothes. He couldn't really remember. Mm. Yeah, it's not something you pay attention to unless it was you went from a really nice outfit to a crappy one, or from a crappy one to a really nice. Just changing your shirt or your pa- jeans. Mm-hmm. From one pair, one pair of jeans to another, eh, yeah, it's not really something you'd note. Yeah, no, not really. Uh, you know, I don't know if there was a dress code at the Bellhaven Club. Mm, I'm sure there was. There probably was. Yeah. So, so if you wanted to come back and change out of your your, mm-hmm. your slacks and your tie and get into something a little more casual, uh, was Tommy a 32 inch waist? No, uh, Tommy was a no. He was pretty athletic. He was not a. You were thinking of the 36 inch waist 36, jeans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I don't think Tommy was nearly that big. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he was 17 years old, you know. Mm-hmm. You're usually skinny at that yeah. age, right? So, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't Tommy. But uh, what are the other reasons? I mean, of course, he lied uh, about the whole re- book report thing. He was not in bed at 9.45. But... And that's... So, for that and many other reasons. But they, they spent a lot of... And, oh, yeah, he failed his first... Well, he didn't really fail his first polygraph. It was inconclusive. Well, so here's a question, I guess, right? One of the big things from the... Um, allegations was that when ken did his bed check at 9 45 tommy wasn't in his bed mm-hmm. but wasn't that because he was in ken's room with ken watching a video it was at the tv no. room he didn't he didn't go into ken's room to watch the to watch or the he movie. was in the tv room but he was with ken when ken was reportedly doing this bed check no no he was not it's after yeah it was after 9.45 is the bed check. I it was like see. quarter after quarter 10 after or 10.30, 10. something like that. that. they started watching 10, the movie. Yeah, that, yeah. And, well, Ken was already watching the movie, I and see. then Tommy just sort of wandered in and okay. sat down and watched it with him. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. You know, again, no physical evidence. I mean, one of the things that would indicate to me that maybe it was Tommy is that, of course, that, there's that whole thing about the rolled-down panties. Mm-hmm. Tommy was a real ladies' man. Mm-hmm. He was flirting. Know? And, yeah, and, uh, you know, he definitely, of, of all of our suspects, Martha is... Or, Excuse me, Tommy is the most likely to roll pull down her pants for him. So I I don't want to get too graphic here, but correct me if I'm wrong, Joe. I swear I remember there was some discussion of the use of hands in a sexual manner from one or both of Martha and Tommy at some time. Is that correct? Uh yeah, there was. They were playing with each other. Uh, yeah, that uh, that story changed in uh, summer 1992. Okay, yeah. okay, so I'm not misremembering because that 92. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of looking at this in two ways. I'm looking at Tommy as a suspect uh, up until he changed his story. Okay, and then Tommy as a suspect after he changed his story. So let's let's see. Okay, so we've done the the so, before he changed his story. Yeah, the the before is uh, he had an inclusive. Uh, it's kind of a. Uh, his polygraph results were never really all that conclusive, you know, one way or the other. And, uh, you know, there were reasons for the police to be suspicious, but obviously they couldn't get an indictment. The, mm-hmm. the prosecutor refused to sign an indictment of him because, I mean, they just didn't have any evidence. The evidence was, was he was the last person to see her alive. 
and he had had some psychiatric issues, some violent outbursts. I mean, so what? Doesn't mean yeah. that doesn't prove anything, right? right? That didn't stop him from being a suspect. Nope. No, not at all. But we'll come back to Tommy in a minute. Okay. Let's talk about another suspect. Martha's brother, John Moxley. After he went and drove around a bit, he was outside searching, and uh, Julie Skakel came out of the house, and she was wanted to look, too. That's the and, mom? No, Julie is uh, Michael's older sister. She was, oh, believe, I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah. yeah, got it. Yeah, I know. It's hard to keep track. There's a lot of names in here. Uh, so John was... Uh, he was actually polygraphed by the police, and I think he passed, and so he was removed as a, from the list of suspects. But one of, I think it was Sheila, said that uh, she was actually afraid of John Moxley, and he was known for, for violence. He went after, he was known to go after people with baseball bats a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Of course, he was a teenager, 17, you know, I mean, hey, I'm sure he's In a... privilege, no, there's no repercussions to my actions. Yeah, possibly not. Um, but when he was out with Julie, Julie didn't really remember this until much later when she was hip, she wanted her hypnosis to try uh, to restore some of her memories. Yeah, and then yeah. she suddenly me- remembered. Okay. Suddenly remembered something, yeah. About, these, these conjured thoughts, yeah. okay. Yeah, suddenly remembered. Hit me with it. He was kind of over over the Skakel place, kind of calling Martha's name. And he says to Julie, you know, you should go over and look in our lawn. And Julie was like, why? I mean, if she could, she, you're, you're yelling her name, she'd be able to hear it from over there if she's over there, right? You know, and, and he was like, he was kind of insistent. He really wanted her to go over to the Moxley yard and look around. She thought it was kind of creepy and strange in retrospect. Uh, the, the, the next thing that happened is in the Sorry, morning. Wait, th- that, that, that came out of hypnosis? Yeah. Like, that was a recalled later. memory. No, yeah. I, I, nobody can see this, but us in the studio. You're doing I'm the using the quotes. finger air quote thing. Yeah, the air quotes, yeah. Which I do through every episode because everything know. is air quoted. Mm-hmm. But Memory is, memory is a, a really tricky thing. It and is. It can, be, uh, it can be really seriously altered by just sheer repetition, if nothing else. And that there's probably at least a few witnesses in this case who have had their memories altered. Oh, yeah. Every somebody... time you remember something, you're altering it, you're mm-hmm. overwriting it, yeah. and that's a known fact. Yeah, yeah. That what you're remembering is actually the last time that you're remembering that thing. Yeah. You don't actually remember that thing anymore. Yeah, you're overwriting the file every time you access yep. it. Uh-huh, yeah. So it gets, it gets a little degraded every time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but the next thing that happened is a, a friend of his came over at 9 o'clock the morning of 1031, and John was, had, of course, had been asleep in the TV room. Well, this was something that got the guys at, at Sutton Associates, you know, the, the private mm-hmm. investigators, got them kind of interested in John as a suspect. And that is that he and his friend were, were thinking, well, we've got to go out and look for Martha. Martha's missing. Mm-hmm. So they head out the house, out of the house, the Moxley house, and then they head towards the back of the house, which would have taken them, like, right by the pine tree where Martha's body was. Mm. And this is something um, police will tell you, is that if there's a search party for a body or for somebody who's missing, then if a family member is part of that, they're part of organizing it or they're out participating with it, you want to watch them. Because if they're the murderers, they're going to lead you straight to the body. Hmm. And the reason being is they can't stand the idea of animals getting to the body and, and chewing it up and carrying it away or whatever. So that's always something you want to do is watch those guys. And it looked like John was trying to lead his friend towards Martha's body. And also maybe Julie the night before. And exactly. Hmm. Because, yeah, he wanted the body to be found. He just didn't want to be the one to find it himself. But... Again, I'm not... Uh, oh, yeah, and there were also some potential blood stains in the TV room on a table in there that were apparently cleaned up by the maid before the police could look at them. 
Uh, that's about it for the evidence against John Moxley. There's really not much there. That that is really paper thin. It is. It is. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some other questions, right? As to like, how did he get the golf club? Uh, well, I mean, they, well, like we said, they left him laying about. They were readily available. Yeah, yeah, but he would have had to gone over to the other house and get it, and then brought it back. It's not as though it'd mm. be laying about the Moxley property, right? Yeah, maybe not. But uh, the thing about this neighborhood too is that there really wasn't much in the way of fences mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, and people all just sort of crossed each other's property all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. it's much like you know it, it drives me nuts. It's very it makes me think of my neighborhood, which is not nearly as ritzy or large. <laughs> But understatement the, of the year. Yes, but the the kids in the neighborhood, uh, you know, they they run through my yard, my front yard, and then they run across my neighbor's front yard, and then that neighbor's front yard, and then they they veer onto the sidewalk, and then they veer across the street, and then they veer into somebody else's front yard. All of this at top speed. Yeah, but how old are they? Uh. 12 to 15. Okay. All right. Where's your shotgun, dude? Uh, well, the problem is, is that I can't keep them off of my yard. I am not that old man. Mm-hmm. I, I have to, I have to physically restrain myself so that I don't go running out there saying, get off of my grass. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, but I mean, it happens. I watch this all the time and I'm like, do you not understand? And, and then I realize they don't. Not they really. they don't yeah. get it, and I think that the same thing is that it's it's communal to them at that point. Oh yeah, the the Skankles, they left the golf club. I picked up the golf club. I carried it home. I'll wander back by in a couple of days and just chuck it on their lawn, and the gardener will pick it up. Yeah. That weirdo guy will do it. There's, I mean, I guess there's some I can explain away why John might have gone the way he went, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you know to go out back. I mean, the her. Martha's body was discovered by her friend who was cutting through her property, which means that, like, that's how those friends got to each other's property usually, right? So it was Mm. probably a route. Right. So one would assume that, but also one would assume that if you were going to go investigate that way, you would see the body. Mm-hmm. So, Depending on the apparently. light at the time yeah. that you're walking through, if it's if he's wandering about four in the morning, he's, and it doesn't fall into his flashlight beam, he's not going to see it. No, but I it was my understanding that that was the search. The search with his male friend, yeah, was like eight or nine. It was about nine, yeah. and it was very brief. Basically, they went just went out back and sort of took a look, you know, mm-hmm. and yelled. Uh, probably, I, I don't think they even yelled. They just sort of looked. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, but you know, again, I'm not going to try to accuse John Moxley. I've, okay. I've seen a couple of different interviews with him on the on the tube, and he seems like a reasonably decent, sincere guy. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't see any yeah, any indications he's a psycho killer. Uh, next up is uh, Martha's boyfriend at the time, Peter yeah. Zaluka. She had a boyfriend. She had a boyfriend. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think Peter was 16 at the time. He has since deceased. Uh, a lot of people involved with this case, by the way, died young for some reason. Uh, you know, usually of drug overdoses or just whatever heart attacks. Martha's father is dead. Living an indulgent uh, lifestyle, okay? Yeah. yeah, well, Martha's father was actually not indulgent. He was a, he was a workaholic. He's one of those guys. That, oh, you know, those, never those stop. Type A personality. You know, you know, yeah, who died in his 50s, I believe. Oh, maybe maybe 60s. I don't know. But he died. He died fairly young, though. Unfortunately, Dorothy, to my knowledge, is still alive. Uh, back to Peter Zaluka, the boyfriend. Uh, there were some diary entries in Martha's diary about Peter. Apparently, that 
he he had some really bad moods. He he said hateful things to Martha. He was a violent. He had a reputation as a violent person, a fighter. How old was he? I think he was sixteen. Okay, that explains that. Got it. Yeah, I know. I know. Sixteen-year-old uh, dudes, they're dumb. They say mm-hmm. stupid stuff. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, uh, Martha, according to her diary, at least, was planning to break up with Peter. Which yeah. indicates nothing. Okay. No, no, no. But Peter... I understand it indicates that she may have done it that night and yeah. that he reacted badly, but... Or perhaps, you know, he has an alibi, which is his mother, that which is not the tightest alibi I've ever heard. Yeah, that's a pretty common one. Family yeah. member. Yeah, it is. And not, not a tight one. But um, if, you, if you look at it, he apparently said that he worshipped Martha. He was apparently really gaga over, over Martha. Imagine a scenario where he went out, he didn't actually stay at home at all with his mother, because why would he stay at home with his mother? He stayed home with his mother and watched TV. You know, I mean, imagine he went after mischief night. Imagine he made, he made his way over towards the Moxley house and, and was maybe crossing the Skakel's land. They had a fairly decent-sized parcel and happened to see Martha and Tommy going at it. Fooling around. Uh-huh, yeah. Did I, did I explain exactly how he changed his story? Uh, I'll, 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 I'll tell Tommy? you Tommy? Yeah, Tommy. No, you decided to break him up, yeah. so you haven't, you haven't told us the second okay, half of his right. story. Uh, they had a sexual encounter. Um, yeah, well, they, uh, they hung out for... Remember the, 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 the hands pants? Yeah, hands and pants kind Description? Of that's, that's what he means by a sexual encounter. Yeah, they, they essentially, according to Tommy, they engaged in a mutual masturbation. Okay. Yeah. yeah and, hands pants. Yeah. Hands pants. Yeah, and supposing if he witnessed this, uh, and if you're, you know, 16 and head over heels in love and something like that, you see that. I mean, obviously that I could see where that would cause somebody to flip out. Yeah, yeah. Right. I, I can all. Yeah, I can see the violent rage. I can also see the sobbing, blubbering mess. I mean, that could go either way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but it's also it'd also be interesting if the dude in that scenario, the extra dude in that scenario, didn't bear some of the wrath. Well, that's it. You would think. You would think that he would be going after Tommy even First. more. Yeah. 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 And then Martha. Yeah. But maybe not. Yeah, well, he anyway, Peter Zaluka took a polygraph and passed, apparently. Yeah. And I'm not so sure how ironclad polygraphs really are. I'm, yeah, they're they're not they're not the best ever, but yeah. Okay, so Peter's Peter's cleared, so that leaves us with one and a half suspects. Yeah, kind of. Well, as you know, Michael's changed his story. Um and uh, eventually, the Sutton uh, the Sutton investigation was closed down. Uh, Tommy had a lawyer ever since ever since like 1976. He had an early 76. He had a lawyer. Not named, shocking. Not, yeah, named Manny Margolis, and he was present when when Tommy changed his story. Uh, that was in summer 1992, and that's when he shut down the Sutton investigation. And but then there was somebody that Sutton had hired. They'd hired this college this guy, oh, guy God, that's out of right yeah and this guy was about 22 23 and he, his job was to distill all the information in the files into a, a nice coherent well-written report right and he is the guy who leaked the report to dominic dunn i remember him he used to write for vanity fair yeah 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 he leaked a copy of that report to dominic dunn 
because he felt that you know this report really implicated the Skakels, especially Michael. And of course, Dominic Dunn eventually gave the report to Mark Furman, who used as the basis for a lot of charges mm-hmm. in his book. And so we we talked about how Michael changed his story when when talking to and that's, the that Sutton was guys. it was for the Sutton yeah, Sutton but that report. was not the first time he had actually changed his story. Okay, yeah. right, which we talked about, which we talked about, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it formed a it, it it formed the basis for the Furman book, which again was the blueprint for the prosecution case. Okay. The major difference between the prosecution and Furman's book is at least Furman was honest to, enough to acknowledge the golf club handle was present at the crime scene. Mm. I mean, he in, he insinuated that there was corruption in the Greenwich Police Department, and that perhaps a corrupt cop had, had gotten rid of the evidence. But he at least acknowledged that, that it was present at the crime scene. Okay. Which the prosecution didn't do. The prosecution said that the, the, the murderer, whoever he was, had carried it away with him from the crime scene. Michael Skakel also made statements to a guy named Richard Hoffman, who was a ghostwriter. He was going to write a book since he had been, come back under the microscope. He was going to, going to write a book about to exonerate this. himself. Yeah, and tell the story and, and all that. And um, and so they made a, a bunch of tapes. And um, in in these tapes, he made some various statements, like he talked about the whole climbing of the tree thing, and he also talked about when he woke up the next day and and Dorothy Moxley was standing outside his bedroom door. His said his, his statement was basically like, "Oh, Mered, what if she saw me last night?" You know, and mm-hmm. they played that, and the, the prosecution played that in closing arguments. They played the, they played the tape, and they selectively edited it and stuff. And they played the tape, and, and along with the picture of Martha's dead body laying in the yard, in some they, kind of like power audio PowerPoint. It was thing. a PowerPoint thing, yeah, yeah. And apparently that was a very Slideshow. yeah that was very effective. So that was part of their closing. Uh, their evidence was basically the non-existent semen, which said that the prosecution actually stated he had he had purposely ejaculated on Martha's body as a final act of disrespect. And I read the I read the closing. That's what he said, even though nothing was found on her body. Man, Michael wow. should have just stuck to the shaggy defense. What's yeah? Wasn't me. Mm-hmm. No matter what they say, wasn't me. But she mm-hmm. saw me on the counter. Wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> You know, obviously. Both going over. Yeah. I. <laughs> but anywho. Yeah. All right. So much for that. But uh, and, and there was a little a little more evidence. Um, but obviously, the statement on the tape was taken by the jury. I mean, what if she saw me murdering Martha? Oh no no yeah. that 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 was that was as stitched together as some of our past episodes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Totally. Totally put together. Oh yeah, and um, <laughs> you know, and obviously, if she had seen Martha being murdered, I, thought, I don't think she would have waited till eight thirty in the morning to come over and say, "Hey, Michael, I want to talk to you about you murdering my daughter." Yeah, yeah. no, <laughs> no. Yeah. But that seems to be the implication from that. I mean, that's totally the implication. Oh, so dumb. Funny. Yeah. Okay. Um, this guy is so going to be out of jail by the or the decision's going to come through by the time this episode posts. I hope so. Maybe I so. Am, They've had. I it. am so based on what we've talked about and i've read i hope he gets resolution oh, soon good lord you know i i can't i hate to break it to you guys but i gotta tell you this judges are more concerned about process than they are for the most part about justice yeah they are but the process was ruined because they said they had evidence which th- that evidence has never been presented well exactly they lost I mean, so he, much evidence and and and, and to take 
the loss of the golf club handle and to make so much hay out of that, like this points a finger at our at the defendant. Well, and, when and okay, you and, guys and just to, lost it. To say you have a piece of evidence, but not make that available to the defense to then say, "Well, you didn't want to do any testing on it, but let me do testing to see if I can prove my client innocent." I mean, that's a process problem. This whole thing is just so. Oh, yeah. Bar. yeah. So the okay. So that, that's my goal. Yeah. The uh, yeah. That, well, the other evidence they had is they had testimony. Remember, I said Elon, the school where they uh, the, the for drug addled kids right. and stuff like that. There were two guys that uh, were at that school with him who testified at his trial. One of them was John Higgins, and John Higgins actually doesn't get very good character references. Uh, mm-hmm. I've read a lot of trial court transcripts of various people that went to Elon with him and then had very low opinion of him and didn't feel he was honest or trustworthy. But uh, the state, state of Connecticut's investigator, Frank Gar, uh, was apparently contacted by somebody who knew Higgins and said that he should call Higgins. Because at this time, there was a $50,000 reward posted, posted by the Moxley family. Oh, crap. Yeah, and so Higgins apparently contacted them, or maybe Gar contacted Higgins. And John Higgins basically said, look, you know, I didn't, I, I, I don't know, I know nothing uh, because, uh, you know, I, Michael never told me that he confessed to, he never, he never told me he murdered Martha Moxley. And so then Frank Gar spells out to him very carefully, do you know about the reward? Uh, and this is a policeman again, Frank Gar says, do you know about the reward? And, and, and Higgins says, yeah, I hear it's 50,000 bucks. And at the time, the, the reward had just been raised to 100,000 bucks. Okay. And so Gar says to Higgins, well, it's 100,000 bucks. And Higgins says to him, oh, that's special. And then Gar explains to him, you know, like, uh, you know. The terms of it. Pretty much what he needs to tell him, you know. And then calls him back, calls him back at a later time and says, hey, have you thought about that? thought about all this? And then. Higgins changed his story. And how do we know that, by the way? Is this on tape somewhere? Uh, yeah, Frank Gar taped the conversation. So we hear him lead, building the witness's story yeah. and then having the witness... And then he changes his story. And it do- he doesn't change his story. He doesn't change his story to Michael saying, I did it. He changed his story to Michael saying, yeah, it was all kind of in a haze. It was kind of like in a dream. I was in the garage pulling a golf club out of a set... And then next thing I know, I was running through some so pine trees. He made trees. it into a dream scene yeah, in a TV r- show. Okay. Yeah, I was running through some pine trees, you know, with the golf club. And, and that's, you know, all I remember. That was enough for the jury. But he never actually told, or Higgins never actually said, Michael said, I did it. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he was so, he was willing to shade it in order to collect some money. But he was not willing, apparently, to, to go over the line and say that Michael had actually said, I did it. Uh, uh, there was another witness, Greg Coleman. Also, oh, this is a, uh, this for or against Michael? This was against Michael. Okay, yeah, uh, similar kind of guy. Uh, not he was a heroin addict, and uh, and you know you know heroin not addicts. Are, I don't want to sound judgmental, but they're not the most trustworthy people, you know. Uh, but he said that uh, Michael had confessed to him while at Elon. He said that he he'd done it. And, and uh, and he changed his story up a little bit. Uh, he's, at one time, he said that Michael had confessed to him like six times, and, and then finally he winnowed it down to maybe two, two times. But, you know, uh, nobody else at Elon, everybody else that went to Elon with Michael said that if he had fessed up at Elon, it would have been all over the school. It was a small school, about 100 students, and they were all encouraged. Anything at any school spreads like wildfire. Yeah. And, oh, they were all, they were totally encouraged to rat each other out, too. And so, you know, so for the other people, there were other people that testified for the defense, the defense that said this was completely laughable, 
this whole idea that he this this guy would have kept it to himself. Yeah, no, it's he wouldn't. Ridiculous. Have. So uh, the other thing about Michael is, is you know they interrogated them on the day of the body being discovered, right? And they didn't give them all polygraphs, but I saw Michael's brother John, who was in the car that went to the Terrians and provided him with an alibi. I saw him on the tube. He he seemed completely honest and sincere, and he said, "Look, you know, I mean, I was with Michael, and that's what I told the police the day of, and I took a polygraph test, and I passed it, and that was good enough. Now, now they're claiming that we're all liars. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was he was he was sincerely a little outraged by the whole thing. Yeah, I'd be incensed. Yeah, yeah, and but I do think that Michael Skakel is innocent. I don't think I think his alibi is solid. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention is that Ken Littleton was. He was routinely being picked up by the police, and in 1976, he told Greenwich police that Rushton Jr. told him at about 9.15 on the night of the 30th that he was going to take Jimmy Terrian back home and that he was taking his brothers, John and Michael, with him. Mm -hmm. He told that to the police, and that was in the police files. Right. The police withheld that from the defense. So, yet again, another bit. Okay. Yeah, and they withheld that from the defense, along with some other tidbits. So, basically, Michael's innocent. Uh, Apparently, yeah, because they they could not have have gotten a a conviction without undermining his alibi the way they did. But his alibi, and they found there was one other witness that was not present at the trial at all, who also confirmed his alibi that he was at the Tarians. So, essentially, you know, that's it. He's innocent. That doesn't mean that the Supreme Court is gonna is not gonna toss him back in jail because you don't know the way lawyers think. But anyway, sorry lawyers out there, by the way. Uh, let me get on. So Michael's out. Let's get get on to the next ones. These, these ones were put forth by first of all a guy named Tony Bryant. RFK Jr. talks about him in his book. Tony Bryant actually went to Greenwich. He claims on the day of the murder. Tony is, by the way, his brother of Kobe Bryant, the basketball player. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you can see his. he was interviewed by uh, detectives that were sent by Michael's defense team to, uh, to interview him. And it's, it's, two, it's a two-part video. It's on YouTube. If you go to and type in Tony Bryant interview, mm-hmm. you'll find it. Have you seen it? Yeah. Uh, it's not ringing a bell. Okay. Uh, so he talks about these two guys that he went to high school with. Tony used to actually go to school and live in Greenwich, but then he moved to New York City. And he was going to a much rougher high school, and he knew these two big dudes. They were like 16 years old, Adolph Hasbrook and Burton Tinsley. Uh, the three of them liked to actually occasionally go out to Bellhaven and hang out, since, he used, since Tony used to live out there. And apparently he said, he says in his interview that Adolph uh, became obsessed with Martha. He met her apparently a few times. And he believes that uh, from things that he said, that Adolph and Burr said before and after the murder, he believes that they did it. I don't want to get into great detail, by the way. There, I do want to say, by the way, there's no corroborating evidence. I was going to say that so this is all there is to, to for those two. Yeah, there or is, for him. There is, yeah, there is not. Again, not much in the way of evidence. So, but but apparently these guys did did lawyer up, and uh, they're not talking. But uh, and again, I'm not I'm not saying they're guilty of anything because frankly, I, I really don't see a, much of a motive here. So let's move on to our last suspect, Tommy Skakel. Tommy, as, you, as we've noticed, had a history of violent outbursts. He changed his story. Like Michael, he changed his story. But here's the deal. Michael changed his story a lot sooner, before DNA was a thing. Tommy waited till after. There were a couple of, um, couple of uh, sudden investigators that sat him down for an interrogation summer of 1992. One of them, Billy Krebs, I think he was ex-NYPD, said, Look, Tommy, you've got you to gotta understand this. We're going to be doing some DNA testing. And so, you know, if there's anything that, that you haven't told us before, you should tell us now. 
that's standard procedure to rattle somebody. Okay. Yeah. 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 And that is when Tommy changed his story and uh, said that they spent an extra 20 minutes between 9.30 and 9.50 out back behind the tool shed in the yard uh, doing their whole, you know, hands... Hands pants. Hands pants thing. And they uh, they were leaning on it pretty hard. Apparently, to, to, from what I can what I understand is... Tommy, the investigators were? They were. They okay. were after he changed his story. And apparently Tommy looked like he was about to cry. Then one of them just suggested that they, um, that they take a break. Billy Krebs was infuriated by this because it broke, the whole, it broke the whole tension thing. And also it allowed Manny Margolis, who was present, the lawyer, to basically put an end to the whole interview. Mm-hmm. So they never got any further with Tommy. But I gotta say, I mean, I mean, all the suspicion has been cast upon Michael because he changed his story because that would account for Seaman being present when, if indeed it was, yeah, when Tommy did the same thing and the exact same thing. And the thing is, he didn't do it until 1992. Here's the other thing: Tommy lied the night of, or I should say, he he lied the day after. Now, I could see why Tommy would leave a few salacious details out. I could see why he why he would leave out the part about the hands pants. But you don't have to lie about when you actually parted ways with her, and that would be useful information for the police who were trying to establish the time of death and what her movements were. But he lied. Well, and, well, hang on. There's no conceivable reason to lie when he could have just sanitized his account, except he wanted to remove himself as far away in time as he could from the actual time of death, which he knew. He, but he, no, he doesn't have to have known the time of death. We talked about this earlier. Mm-hmm. You're a 17 year old kid. Mm-hmm. You've been playing tickle with a girl, yeah. and you know that's not going to go down well with your family, let alone the cops, now sure. that she is found with sure. a golf club stuck in her neck. Mm-hmm. But of course, you're going you're gonna to try foolishly. Because you don't think clearly in the heat of the moment, you're 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 putting your all of your investigation time to say, well, obviously it would make sense, but you don't know that at the time. For him to go, I don't know, I, I no no, we kissed and we walked away. We weren't doing anything untoured, mm-hmm. nothing at all. But the, here's the deal: is that again, Tommy didn't. He could just sanitize his account. All he needed to do was say, yeah, we hung out, we sipped beers, we smoked a cigarette. We parted ways at 10 minutes till 10. And you're giving belief. Because, again, at this time... If, but he may if not Tommy have known didn't, what time it was. If Tommy didn't do the crime, then Tommy had no clue what the time of the murder was. As far as Tommy knew, it was midnight. It was 3, and eight, 3 a.m. He had no idea. Well, he, but well, he, so he, he knew he went point? saw a TV show at some point, and he may yeah. have done really crappy math yeah. as to what time he left her. But no, I don't know, Joe. I, mean, I, I, I understand that you feel that it is really, really important... Uh, that he changed his story the way he did. Mm. I, I don't see it the same way. I, I think it casts a lot more suspicion on Tommy than it does on Michael. Michael had better reason to leave out his account of climbing the tree and playing pocket pool. Tommy had no reason to, to not tell the police the, the time that he parted ways with Martha. I want to clarify. Yeah. When he told police that, was it after they found her body or before they found her body? That was after they found her after. body. Okay. But before, but before any time of death had been established. Yeah, it and takes so, a while to establish that. Yeah, it within, does. Within yeah. a All good, right. solid window. Yeah, it does. And so, and so, again, that's a little bit of a head-scratcher when 
he could have provided them with a little more solid information and he chose to lie instead. Um, you know? Well, realistically, I have a really crappy sense of time and I couldn't tell you, like, you know, this episode feels like it's been literally 10 hours. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's been, what, uh, like two. So I think, f you know, for me, as somebody with a really bad sense of time, it's reasonable to say, like, I don't know, we hung out for 10 more minutes. Well, then, but then if Tommy had a bad sense of time, then... How do we know we parted ways from Martha at 10 minutes till 10? We don't. And not 10, 15. Right, we don't. We don't really know that. Right. But he, but he, it just seems to me that... The he, later it goes, the like later her time of death is. You know, mm. for me, it's just saying, like, well, I don't know. I mean, not to sound like a, a, a jerk, but it could have been that he hung out with her for five or 10 minutes, and she talked to him the whole time, and him being a typical dude is like... This has been going on for so long. She uh -huh. just won't stop talking. Yeah. I, uh, it feels like I've been here for like 20 minutes. Alternately. And wander away. Alternately, right? Um, you ever been like having sex and been like, oh my God, this is the most amazing hour of my life. And you look no, at the clock actually. and you're like, it's been five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you ever do that though? Like ever in your life, have you been like, wow, this is like amazing. And then you realize. Yeah, your sense of time is yeah. completely so skewed. So there's also, I guess, some reality to him, you know, them engaging in whatever we're calling it, hands, pants or whatever. Mm -hmm. right? And them both thinking like, oh my God, or him particularly being like, wow, that was an amazing 10 minutes. Mm. But actually, it was like an hour, or even vice versa, where he says, "Wow, it was like was half an hour." It's like two hour. minutes later, and yeah. then you know, Ken says, "No, nah, dude, you were here, you know, ten minutes later," and he's like, "Oh, really?" Well, honestly, hmm. I don't, I don't know how Tommy kept track of time. They might have had clocks. He might have glanced at clocks the whole time, or he might be off something. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that he, he, he deliberately chose to put himself as far away from the time of murder as possible, uh, which no, in my opinion I, is suspicious I'm, I'm, behavior. You can't say that, Joe. Why you not? You cannot say he deliberately did it. Of course he did. You, you don't know that. Yeah. You can't say that. He you had, don't know that. He had no reason to do otherwise. He may not have done it intentionally. Mm. How can you say that? Because we just had the conversation of he may have a crappy sense of time, so you can't mm. say he's doing it intentionally. Well, I think it was Peter. Think, Parker? Oh, okay. We'll go for Peter. Spider-Man? Yeah, mm. Peter okay. Yeah, the uh, nice thing about Peter is he's one of the dead ones, so you, know, you can accuse him of all kinds of stuff. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. True. So in fairness to Tommy, Tommy has lived under a cloud of suspicion for many, many years. I think a lot of people still suspect Tommy of being the killer, and, uh, you know, we don't really know. I mean... Yeah. Tommy is, uh, I still like Tommy as a suspect, but I have to tell you, if I were sitting on a jury, I would not vote to convict Tommy of anything. I would yeah, not. Or there's, yeah. yeah, there's no, there's no solid no. evidence anywhere. No, so. no, there isn't. There, yeah, and so whoever killed Martha, you know, uh, I think that he's uh, gotten away with it, but that happens. Or she. Or she, good or point, she. good point, yeah. yeah. Well, let's do some of that uh, housekeeping stuff that we do at the end okay. of the episodes, yeah. Uh, first of all, our website, thinkingsidewayspodcast.com, where you can find our episodes. You can't comment anymore, unfortunately, but you can still listen to the episodes. Yep. Uh, and there's always links out there also uh, for, to various stories and things and sources. Uh, you can also download and listen to us from iTunes, where you, know, you should subscribe and give us a rating and give us a review, hopefully a really good rating and review. And streaming, there's like everywhere. There's Google Play also. Uh, social media. We're on Facebook. You've heard about Facebook, right? Yeah. I hope so. Uh, there's, there's a Once group. Once or twice. Yeah. 
Well, uh, there's, a, there's a group and there's a page. You want to join the group, of course. We are on the Twitter. Uh, we are Thinking Sideways without the G. And a subreddit. Uh, we have a subreddit called Thinking Sideways. And, of course, if you want to get in contact with us, we have an email. You've heard about email, right? This, this, new, this new amazing thing, yeah. Uh, um, it's called our, our email is thinking sideways podcast at gmail.com. Do you got anything you want to tell us? Criticism, especially? Yeah, send it to us to, uh, through the email. We accept criticism, although we prefer compliments, but you know, we'll take feedback too. You can also support us. Uh, first of all, merchandise. You'll find uh, on our website links to fun things like shirts and mugs and stickers. Uh, there's Zazzle and Redbubble stores linked in the right-hand panel of the website. Uh, there's also, if you want to donate, you can donate through PayPal, which would be a one-time thing, or Patreon. And Patreon, it's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, slash thinking sideways. And that's one where you kind of, you pledge an amount, and then, and then they take that amount out of your credit card or whatever for, you know, every episode. Uh, you know, so you can pledge a, a dollar, a million dollars. That would be really nice. Uh, but, <laughs> but just remember that whatever you pledge, it's not a one-time thing. It happens every episode. Yep. Except for the shorts. Occasionally we put up shorts and, and special things, and then we don't charge for those. But So if you want to support us that way, that would be awesome. Uh, and and not, thank you for everybody who has yeah, been. A lot of we appreciate have. that. Yeah, we do appreciate that. Uh, it really helps to defray expenses. So that's it, the, the murder of Martha Moxley. I guess we've got to wrap this mystery up. You guys have yeah. any final thoughts? No. Wasn't me. Yeah. Yeah. What I thought of him. <laughs> yeah. Ah, wasn't me either. So anyway, too bad about Martha. Ah, too bad about Michael. But anyway, that's it for this week, guys. See you next week. But <laughs>